Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This series, Hope in Darkness, Jewish History of the 14th and 15th Centuries, was recorded earlier this year in 2020 in front of a live audience, the last series David has been able to give in person since the COVID pandemic began. In addition to this podcast audio, we are delighted to be able to offer a video recording of each of the lectures. To watch these videos, either visit David's YouTube channel or go to davidsolomon.online slash podcasts and click on the link to the podcast episode. So welcome tonight. I hope this, uh, this series is of interest to you. It's been obviously uh, something that I've deferred constantly, um, primarily because other centuries and other periods of Jewish history demand focus and uh, they demand a certain type of uh, giving over and interpretation and they blink neon flashing lights at our attention and we look at them, but eventually we come to look at those periods in Jewish history that are a little less well-known, that are a little less well-known. Any taxi driver in Tel Aviv can soliloquize beautifully on the 18th century, and I'm sure many in this room could as well, and even the 17th century, and probably, you know, we did a series last year or the year before on the 12th and 13th centuries from the Rambam to the Zohar, but there's this kind of period in the medieval ages, in the Middle Ages, basically covered from round about 1300 to the end of the 1400s, that is not so well known. And there are a few reasons why it's not so well known, and hopefully we'll look into a bit of that. And I've called this series Hope in Darkness, because Ultimately, this is a very, very difficult period in Jewish history. This is, a his this is a period that is just overall yuck and doesn't have a huge... I know, I know, but we're not going to give three talks on yuck. We're going to go into yuck in great detail, hopefully, or some detail, bearing in mind, as I always say, that we are really only in the jet ski going over the surface. There are always much, much deeper areas of investigation, but I'm hoping we can touch upon most of the areas that would draw a person's interest in this period. And because it's kind of a little bit obscure, I decided to just do three talks. But of course, tonight, I can only really, just tonight, I can only really do the first 50 years of that period. And I'm going to be covering a period, I'm not going to do a timeline, you all know when 1300 was, it was approximately 720 years ago, but I'm going to go from around 1300 to 1350, and we're going to look at the major themes and the major issues going on in the Jewish world, and how history going forward was formulated by those events and those personalities and those circumstances. And as always, before we can talk about Jewish history itself in any specific time frame, we always have to talk about what's going on in the world generally, in the places where Jews are living and interacting. 
And in order to do that, we have to have our map. And so many of you would be familiar with the map. And uh, you all know what that is. Put your hand up if you don't know what it is. That's brave. That is, that is the Mediterranean. And of course, that's the water. All right. Now, Jews are all over by 1300. Uh, there are some significant centers of Jewish life. In the period of the Middle Ages, the period that we call the Rishonim, going from about 1000 to about 1500, there is no one single center. It's not like the land of Israel is the center as it was, say, during the Second Temple times, or Babylonia is the center during the Gaonic, the Talmudic and Gaonic times. Jewish communities are all over, but there are some centers that are more significant and influential than others. And of course, we have of those, probably the most significant at this particular point, even still, would be Spain. Spain has a long and glorious history already as a Jewish community. We're not anymore in the Golden Age. The Golden Age is receding for us. Why is the Golden Age receding for us in Spain? I'm hearing answers, but I'm not actually hearing them because... Um, but I'm assuming that what you're saying is that because from around the middle of the 13th century, from around about the middle of the 1200s, from the middle of the 1200s, Spain is effectively Christian. And that means that Christians at first, oh, Jews, yes, well, we lived with Jews under Islam. We know Jews. Jews are okay. We've heard about Jews. But by the time you get 50 years or so later on, it's a bit more like, oh, Jews. So the golden times are over. Another big center, of course, are the communities that are reaching significant levels of depth and maturity in France and Germany. The map of the world does not look really how it looks today, but there are some entities taking shape. And I'll be talking about that a little bit as we go along. And we've got significant communities in North Africa, and we've got significant community in Egypt. And there are Jewish communities dotted all around, but that would be your primary axis. Now, if we're starting a new series, we kind of have to just preempt it a little bit by the word previously. And previously means what has happened in the world not far before 1300. So if you're living in Europe in 1300, what's going to be a couple of things from relatively recent history that you are only going to be only too deeply aware of? Well, everybody's saying the Crusades, and that's not a wrong answer. It's not a wrong answer. The Crusades finished effectively in around 1291. By 1291, the Christians had lost the fall of Acre and the loss of the Latinate kingdom in the Holy Land. That's really the end. There was some talk afterwards, oh, let's go and try again, but it wasn't going to happen. 
That's a very significant point in world history that is probably more appreciated by us today than it might have been by someone living in 1300. They didn't know there were going to be any more crusades, but there weren't really any substantial crusades to the Holy Land from Western Christianity after that point. And that's a deeply significant point in Jewish history and world history because it's from that point that effectively it establishes that that is going to be the centre of Islam. Islam is going to have control over that. And Christianity is going to control that. Islam controls the Middle East now and its influence is going to primarily over the next few centuries flow eastward. Christianity has control of Europe and its influence is primarily going to flow westward. That pattern is established by the end of the 13th century. It wasn't a sure thing until then. So that, you're absolutely right. That has just happened. But what else is going to be on people's minds? No, not yet. Well, I'll tell you, and it's astonishing because us sitting here in Caulfield in 2020, we don't really feel the existential pressure of this. But I can tell you that in 1300, people were still talking about it. And that is that during the 1200s, like a completely random outburst, a nation that no one had ever heard of, called the Mongols, had come and expanded and very nearly conquered the whole of the known world. And I'm here to tell you, the Mongols, for the most part, were not nice. They weren't really nice people. They didn't come and say, look, we'd like to settle, we'd like to take you over, we want to buy you out. The Mongols was just a massive wave of terror and destruction and bloodshed wherever they went. They conquered effectively all of Asia. They destroyed medieval Russia. They defeated a number of countries in Eastern Europe, including the Kingdom of Hungary. And they found themselves even virtually at the gates of Vienna before the Mongols finally that wave receded. And it receded for a number of reasons that are not, we're not going to cover tonight, but it has to do with the internal politics of the Mongol Khanate, this massive unstoppable force, and also the fact that the threat was so great to Europe that um, the kings of, or the warring kings of Europe effectively held a truce until the Mongols were defeated and would go away. But it cost millions of lives and blood and destruction everywhere. And the Mongols didn't just advance against Europe. They came from Central Asia and they launched a two-prong attack over the course of a century against the known world. One against Europe and one against the Muslims in the Middle East. 
They sacked Baghdad. They destroyed it in 1258. Baghdad was the cultural and, in a sense, spiritual center. Not spiritual, I mean, it's obviously Mecca, but in a sense, the, the crown and the jewel of the Muslim world was sacked by the Mongols and they were about to advance deep into the Levant. And they were stopped. They effectively destroyed the Ayyubid dynasty, which, as you know, had been set up by Salah al-Din. And they were only stopped because a new dynasty had risen up in Egypt to take over the Muslim world. I'm talking, of course, of... You're all being too modest. You think, oh, on camera, I don't want to show off. I don't... The Mamluks. The Mamluks were a slave class that rose to prominence and power. They were the ones who basically saved the world against the Mongol advance in the famous battle. And once again, things are so interconnected. Where was that famous, famous battle where the Mamluks stopped the Mongols? I wouldn't ask a question unless I thought people might know the answer. And I'm being cryptic, but I gave a series on battles, famous battles in Jewish history. I didn't talk about this battle, but I did talk about the place in the Jezreel Valley. And the Battle of Ein Jalut, Goliath's Well, is where the Mamluks stopped the Mongols. And that, that, that's a, a kind of a, 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 a favor that the rest of Western civilization owes the Mamluks. But they now control here. So you can imagine that by the time we get to 1300, you can see why there is not a lot of impetus to restart the Crusades. We're just taking a breather now because the Mongol destruction wave has gone into recession. So that's still going to be very fresh in people's minds. And make no mistake, I'm talking briefly about the Mongols, but that was a big deal because that changed a number of different, different things in the characteristic of Europe and society. Some historians even say it might have had climatological changes as a result of these destructions and the changes in farming and the way land was tilled and so on. Massive changes, even preempted a little mini ice age. I know that some people mightn't think that human activity can preempt a little mini ice age, but it did in the Middle Ages as a result of the Mongol destruction. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more. In the Jewish world itself, a couple of other interesting things have happened. Just 10 years ago, in 1290, Edward I expelled all the Jews from England. And we have looked at that in detail in the past. That belonged to the previous century and we talked about it, but just the brief of it is, I don't know if you heard about it, but all the Jews, massive nationwide expulsion. Goodbye, tomorrow you are gone. You have to understand that kings in the Middle Ages suddenly realized they could do that. And to them, they're not going to lose a moment more sleep than a contemporary governor of a reserve bank would if he said, tomorrow we're going to bring the interest rate down to 0% because the economy needs it. The Jews were simply seen as a factor in economic policy. That's all Jews were. And if you eliminate your Jews, you alleviate certain pressures in the economy, in the feudal economy, of course. <coughs> 
But by 1300, some of these economic decisions were starting to take on a theological dimension. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But there are two, there's another very specific thing that I've spoken about previously that happened right at the end of the 1200s that has lasting impact that we're just going to need to mention in our background. And that is what? Anyone remember? 1290, the famous year 1290, the end of the Crusades, the expulsion of the Jews from England, and the revelation of the Zohar. A huge spiritual bubble that bursts out of Spain and is going to go on and affect Jewish spirituality and Jewish mysticism and Jewish thought for the next, I mean, till today, for the next 700 years and more. But I want to focus, we're going to start, I'm just going to focus a little bit on this area because, oh, not to mention that as a result of all these things and as a result of the way that feudal economies were unraveling in relation to politics and I know I'm saying those words cryptically and I'm not unpacking them but I'm trying to find a way to summarize it look I've got to tell you this entire field of history the early 14th century is very very complex you have to be across a number of things to get a sense of it and then we embed Jewish history or we embed that in Jewish history we've got to understand the relationship between kings and nobles and popes we've talked about the feudal structure before I'm sure you all learned that we all learned the feudal structure at school and there is a kind of a parallel power structure going on between the nobility headed of course by the king or princes in any particular area but there's a similar parallel hierarchy going on with the Pope and archbishops, cardinals, archbishops and so on and in the Middle Ages everything was about the struggle between those two entities as well as within those two entities especially between kings and then between kings and popes. In the background of all and that's why that is why the early 14th century really starts to see the unraveling of the feudal system and the rise of a merchant class of a merchant class and of nobles who are beginning to coalesce merchants and craftsmen coalescing in guilds to take some of that power to determine autonomously for themselves which way they wanted to go this is the very beginning of the cracks in the feudal system that is eventually going to lead to it being surpassed by over the course of the next four to five hundred years by bourgeois capitalism but it starts really unraveling at the beginning of the 1300s so that's all in the background and of course Jews are going to play a very important part in that unraveling but I want to start really now, I mean, we've backgrounded that and I might think of a couple more things I want to say on that subject of backgrounding, but I just want to get into the basic things that are going on because that, 
is all against another background, which is this. And it's very important to understand this, otherwise we really can't understand much about Jewish history of the early 14th century. And that is this. This is a time when we see a, I wouldn't even so much call it a resurgence, but more of a, a rise and prioritization of the thought of Aristotle. Now, some of you are going to sit there and go, really? That entire sentence just led up to the thought of Aristotle? Why is that so significant? Why is that so important? And I've said this before and I'll say it again because it's difficult sometimes for us to really understand this. In the early 1300s, in the late 1200s, the early 1300s, Aristotle was science. The Christian world over the course of the last century had really only started to be exposed properly to these works of the Greeks that had been maintained by the Muslims in Arabic and were now being translated into Latin and other European languages. So people could now read the Greeks and read Aristotle and it made a massive impression on them. Philosophically, but also what we would call scientifically. Philosophy and science don't bifurcate till much later in Western history. And I'm for real. The thought, so Aristotle's picture of the universe and of nature and of what is going on was as real to them as us switching on a light switch or watching a plane take off or sitting in a computer. The way in which science and technology has dominated our lives that's Aristotle and people are seeing Aristotle as the truth and not everything Aristotle has to say seems to be in agreement with Torah. I don't know if you can imagine that or if you can imagine an age where some people are running around saying that science disagrees with the Torah and some people trying to say it doesn't disagree, there's no conflict. Well, obviously, during the preceding century, the great figure that had attempted to bridge that, those two worlds, was, of course, the Rambam, Maimonides, and his famous Moren Nebuchim. Now, people might think to that, ah, oh, the Rambam, Maimonides. Very mainstream figure, very from, So from today, he'd probably even get a job as the rabbi of this shul or <laughs> even other shuls. The Rambam. No one's going to argue with the Rambam. Well, there was a lot of controversy about the Rambam. In fact, there are four or five different waves of controversy which are grouped in several large groups. And Jewish historians pretty much know 1305 or around about 1303 to 1305 the beginning of the century that we're going to open in Spain and France was a huge debate which is known as the second Maimonidean controversy which had its own nature 
and it boils down to this. And some of you are going to sit there and you're going to go, oh, oh, right, of course. How silly were they in the Middle Ages? How silly were they in the Middle Ages? We'd never be like that. And I'm here to tell you that this discussion is happening in Melbourne today. Why should we be teaching anyone secular subjects? If the Torah is a complete education, why would anyone need to know philosophy or need to know science or need to know mathematics, but especially philosophy? And the Rambam trying to interpret the Torah philosophically is might be fine for the Rambam. He's very, very from. But there are people today who are not the level of Maimonides who are using these ideas from Greek philosophy to allegorize the whole of Torah out of existence by saying, you know, it's not so literal. What it really means is this. And the mitzvot that we need to do are actually kind of exercises in philosophical contemplation designed to bring us to a certain perfection of perception. And once we have that perfection of perception and we understand that philosophical idea, well then really the me physical practice is just kind of like a symbol for that. And therefore eventually you get to the point where, well, I've, I've internalized it. So I don't really need to do it anymore. This was alarming a lot of people and eventually clearly welled up in Spain and France and eventually came before the consideration of the greatest sage in Spain in the year 1300. In fact, he was probably not just the greatest sage in Spain, he's the greatest sage in Europe. And that would be, when I say it, you'll know it, you'll know. We refer to him as the Rashba. And it is Rabbi Shlomo ben Avraham. I don't remember Rashba. Ibn Aderet. Don't worry about my writing. It's going to be on the notes, okay? I do provide some notes. They won't necessarily be as good as notes as you could take, but they'll cover most of the items we're going to talk about, I hope. If, if, if it's not a reflection of what I end up talking about, then I'll tell you. The Rashba. Student of the two greatest sages of the preceding generation. There were two great sages in Spain in the second half of the 1200s. One was the Ramban, Nachmanides. The other was Rabbeinu Yona of Garona. And the Rashba was the student of both of them. In Montpellier, which is in southern France, books were being written and particularly by Avram Alevi of Montpellier, who wrote a book called Bet Nefesh, which really was a book designed to give a person without expertise background sufficient knowledge in philosophy and science that they would be able to access and understand Maimonides. So it was just a very, very par of, this is what you need, these are the philosophical terms, 
that he's using. Because otherwise, you open up the more Vuchim, you open up the guide to the perplexed, you don't know what's going on. You're more perplexed than you were when you opened it, than before you opened it. So it's like that. And that was enough to get some of the more zealous agitators in Montpellier to get all upset because suddenly they were imagining that their kids were going to be going to uni and they, well that's, that, that was a quip, but really they were worried about the educational effects of this. They're also worried about the fact that people could take this idea of allegory and do anything with it in the Torah. It was going to negate all of Midrash, it was going to negate all Jewish interpretations, traditional Jewish interpretations. They saw this as immensely, it was cataclysmic for them. They brought it before the Rush Bar and the Rush Bar eventually in 1305 issued a ban on reading any philosophy including the philosophy of Maimonides himself for anyone under the age of 25 and a total ban on the study of all secular subjects except medicine. That had a, an abiding effect on certain groups till today. But fortunately, the ban was ignored by many, as we will see, because some of the most incredible contributors to secular knowledge came out of Jewish Spain even in the 1300s. But it's important to be aware that that's going on in the background. The Rush Bar's two famous students, we're not going to talk about it at length now, but to give you an idea who the Rush Bar was, his two students, the Ritva, the greatest sage in Europe of the next generation, the greatest Talmudist, and Rabbeinu Bachaya, who some may, of you may have known from his famous commentary on the Torah. Rabbeinu Bachaya was more mystical. The Rush Bar also had problems with the spread of Kabbalah. He, did, he wasn't an enemy of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism, but he didn't like Uga Buga. Now, one of, the, one of the problems we have with Uga Buga is this. Don't ask me what Uga Buga is, you all know what it means. And one of the problems with Uga Buga isn't just in philosophy, oh, sorry, isn't just in Kabbalah, it's also in the philosophy of the time. Because astrology was not necessarily seen as a distinct discipline from astronomy. In other words, it's one thing astronomy observes heavenly bodies and astrology interprets what that means in terms of it, the influence of those energies in the world. And there was a lot of what was considered science that we today would call astrology. And so these distinctions were only just very, very fluid in the early 1300s. And people were applying astral magic and supreme rationalizations of astronomy to all sorts of issues. So it's, we need to be aware that it wasn't just an insular movement on behalf of the Rush Bar. There were certain considerations that might not be made today, but once again, we'll come back to it. And the Rush Bar was concerned with Kabbalah, but really, if we just zoom back the lens fractionally, we're going to be worried about something else much more pressing. 
and that is well there are some various changes going on in European society as I mentioned at the beginning and as I said some of these anti-semitic issues that until now had been primarily economic were starting to take on a theological edge. In 1300 a Pope called Boniface VIII made a papal decree that was to have damaging and lasting consequences right up until the 20th century. And that decree was that a Jewish child, if any Jewish child at any point, whether by force or otherwise, has been baptized, that child is forever Christian and cannot go back to the Jewish community under pain of excommunication equals death as a heretic. That scenario kept getting played out for centuries, but it started with Boniface's decree as these sorts of questions were bubbling up to him. As the toleration of Jews, and Jews till now in the Middle Ages had been tolerated, probably more than anyone else. We were hated, we were lower than, than Jukim in the social scale, but we were tolerated. But now that toleration was beginning to be questioned. And then a Pope called, not long after, a Pope called Clement V calls it what's famously known as the Council of Vienna, the Council of Wien, and he issues various encyclicals there. One of which was a very, very serious set of rules against usury, against charging loans with interest. Now, it, Jews were not mentioned in that encyclical. If we're really unpacking this, Jews, by the way, in most countries of Europe by this time, and we've discussed this previously, were more, especially with the rise of trade guilds, were more or less confined to either very, very small time peddling for kind of your lower level Jews, there might be isolated cases where Jews could be artisans. The Rashbai himself was a banker. But most Jews were in the finance industry in some form, in a broad sense. The finance industry was either directly involved in financing, in loans, or in connecting various commercial networks because of Jews associations in various countries and various languages and those networks were seen as very useful. So a ban against usury opens the question does that include the Jews? And throughout the 1300s the answer was either yes or no depending on what your economy needed. If your economy needed Jews, then the answer would be no. Clement V's ban on usury does not include Jews. 
if your economy wanted to relieve itself of its Jews, then the penalty for usury was expulsion, and therefore expulsion became simply a fulfillment of what the Pope wants. Everybody follow? It wasn't like the earlier expulsions where it, it was extremely on the surface. I want the Jews' money. I'm going to get rid of them and take it. It was couched in these theological justifications. But the church was also, also applying theological pressure in other ways. And particularly because at the end of the day, however things bad got, got bad for a Jew, there was an instant doorway through which they could walk where everything was going to be okay. Their kids would be at good schools, they'd live in a nice apartment, a villa, they'd drive a BMW, yep, and they'd go from Pinchas to Pablo, or Paulus. It was relentless. Relentless. The efforts of Christianity to convert the Jews. We saw this, the famous debates that happened throughout the 1200s, particularly the, the famous debate in Barcelona against the Ramban, but there were still echoes of all that, and we're going to see in this series there's going to be more debates, and even bigger debates than before. That pressure was relentless. One extremely interesting individual in the first half of the 1300s, extremely interesting person, folded under that pressure and became probably the most famous Meshumid of the Middle Ages. Anyone know who I'm referring to? I'll be impressed because even though he's the most famous Meshumid of the, of the Middle Ages, he's not particularly well known amongst an audience like this, which is, just shows you, you know, that being a Meshumid doesn't always lead to stardom. <laughs> but his name is Avner of Burgos. And what's fascinating about Avner of Burgos is that, do you, anyone remember, anyone remember at the end of the course that we gave, I don't know when it was, a year or so ago, whatever it was, from the Rambam to the Zohar, and at the end of the 1200s, I talked about a messianic movement that had arisen in Spain, centered around the town of Avila, where a particular prophet Rabbi Nisim of Avila had suddenly appeared and was doing miracles and making messianic claims. The Rush Bar also had to deal with that. The Rush Bar had to deal with all of these issues. But at Avila, and I'll remind you, it's a pretty interesting, weird episode, that there was a tremendous messianic expectation. And this entire community of Avila, uh, dressed in white, and came to the synagogue on an appointed day, to uh, await their Messiah and not only did the Messiah not show apparently but also everyone was freaked out because little crosses start appearing on their garments. Now Avner of Burgos wasn't there but he was a doctor and he writes extensively about his treatment 
of patients who had been traumatized by the events of Avila. So it's very interesting middle ages psychiatric or mental health treatment for people that had been traumatized by that. And he was dealing with this for 25 years to the point where he himself started having dreams where little crosses were appearing on his clothing and in the end he couldn't handle it anymore and he converted but he converted at about the age of 60 as already a considerable scholar of standing in Jewish Europe he went about then the funny thing in the Middle Ages and even beyond is that when people convert from Judaism to Christianity and you know they have their reasons they have their reasons but for some reason they all seem to take on this kind of viciousness about their former co-religionists they want to set up debates some of them have even been responsible for setting up pogroms they really really hate the Jews there is a self-hatred that I'm not saying from some kind of AJN polemic kind of thing I mean there really is a self-hatred that comes out in Christians that con or Jews that convert to Christianity. Perhaps not all, and I hope I don't offend anyone here tonight when I say that, but historically we've seen it. So Avner of Burgos spent the rest of his life and his career vilifying Jews, and even as far as organizing Alfonso XI, one of the kings of Castile, to organize this massive debate, all the rabbis come and Avner of Burgos is there and he accuses them of a prayer, saying a prayer in the Amidah that is aimed against Christians. And the interesting thing about that is that everyone's shocked, including the rabbis themselves, because they don't know about that prayer. Huh. Some would say that, in fact, the idea that Valam al-Shinim is against the Christians was apparently not known to them. That comes from a different strand of thinking. Some say it wasn't that, some say it was the Aleinu when they spread it. Whatever. Avner of Burgos caused all sorts of interesting issues, but he himself is a fascinating figure, a treater of mental health in Jewish communities, who eventually himself became subject to the same kind of, uh, of problems. Now, if we're talking about, however, economies and Jews, uh, we would need to mention one of the most significant events in Jewish history of the early 1300s that would be known to some of you but I, and you're probably sitting there going well when's he going to talk about that and that is of course in 1306 Philip the fourth now I say Philip the fourth you have to understand that hundreds of books have been written on Philip the fourth he's a He's one of the Dmuyot of the Christian kings of the Middle Ages. Philip IV is a big king of France. He decides that he's going... Now, Philip IV, before this decision, I'm going to tell you, Philip IV has basically, for the last 10 years at least, been at war with everyone. France has been at war with everyone. They've had massive wars with England. They're going to have another war with England. The Hundred Years' War is going to start in 30 years' time. They've had wars with England. They've had a huge war with Belgium, or what's going to become Belgium in Flanders. They've had wars with Spain. They've had wars with everyone, and the country is bankrupt. So Philip decides, okay, I'm going to devalue the coin. 
So instead of putting X amount of silver in each coin, I'm going to put X minus, and you devalue the coin. And still, years later, a few years later, France is bankrupt again. And then and Philip realizes that there is still a fair amount of silver hoarded in France, and I know who's got it. And on the 22nd of July, 1306, which was the 10th of Av, so the day after Tisha B'Av, all the Jewish leaders in France are arrested. And they are told that they must leave France, all Jews must leave France immediately. Immediately. There was a nationwide, instant, nationwide expulsion in 1306. And it wasn't like other expulsions where they said, yeah, we're going to say this, but you know, it's okay, you stick around as long as we don't see you. No, this was a fully enforced expulsion of all the Jews of France. Then Philip went and said, well, I've kicked out the Jews, but you, the debtors to the Jews, the people who the Jews have lent money to, you still owe. But this time, instead of owning Chaim Shmerel, the Jew, you owe me. You owe me. And you owe me at the value of the original silver coin, which I'm now reintroducing. So whatever the amount was, it has to be the same amount of silver as if those coins were original value silver, before I devalued it. Um, after nine years, the pressure on Philip by his population to readmit the Jews was overwhelming. In fact, by which time, in fact, I think Philip had gone from this world and it was his son Louis X. But the pressure on the crown to readmit the Jews was overwhelming because the collectors that were acting on behalf of the king were cruel and malicious and corrupt people. And the entire population said, we want the Jews back. It's unique. So in 1315, the King of France allowed the Jews back in. The expulsion was only for nine years. Some historians argue that they were expelled again in 1322, but that's under some debate. If you do some reading on the expulsion of the Jews of France, you'll see that. But the general understanding is that they were there still for quite some time after 1315 when they were readmitted under certain conditions. And of course, the Jews had to pay for the privilege of coming back into France. And they were allowed to collect maybe a third of their existing debts and the rest had to be paid to the crown. The conditions were crippling, but Jews would go anywhere where there was royal assurance of their protection. Even if it cost a lot of money, protection of a, royal, of a Jewish community by a royal charter was an incredibly valued thing in the Middle Ages. But it wasn't just in France that things were unpleasant. And in 1306, we also see a very, very unique event in Jewish history that is going to have lasting consequences, and it starts in Germany. Now, what's happened in Germany, where we've also got random kings and their ideas, Rudolf I, uh, one of the rulers of Germany, um, decided that there's a good way to get money, and that is if you... Uh, expel your Jews and then capture them and then ransom them off. And the higher caliber the Jew, the more money you're going to ask. So 
it so happened that after an expulsion of a particular area they caught running from that expulsion um, the leading sage of Germany the greatest rabbi and a very very holy and deeply revered rabbi called Rabbi Meir of Rottenburg and he was the last of the great line of the Tosophists and Rabbi Meir of Rottenburg was in jail and there was a ransom organized for him 23,000 florins massive massive amount and he refused to allow it to be paid he ruled on himself and he said you cannot pay this because if you pay this there will be no end to it and they will just keep capturing rabbis and ransoming them so he died in jail that ransom by the way was raised by his greatest student and his greatest student was it is of course Rabbeinu Asher ben Yechiel otherwise known to us as the Rosh greatest sage in Germany raised the funds for his the, to liberate his teacher teacher wouldn't allow it Rabbi Meir of Rottenburg died in prison it took another 14 years just to ransom the body in 1307 is the return of the body of Maram of Rottenburg so it can be buried in the Jewish cemetery at Worms it is based on the observation of these kinds of things that caused the greatest living sage in Germany Rabbeinu Asher ben Yechiel known as the Rosh and when I say the Rosh I know people are sitting there going oh another great rabbi I'm supposed to have heard of let me tell you let me tell you and you know this that when Yosef Karo wrote the Shulchan Aruch wrote the commentary Bet Yosef on the tour the Shulchan Aruch it's based on taking uh, three fundamental opinions from the whole of the Middle Ages Rav Yitzchak Al-Fazi the Rambam Maimonides and the Rosh and what's interesting about all those three this talk is not on the Shulchan Aruch but it's on the people that the Shulchan Aruch is based on the great halachic deciders of the period of the Rishonim in, in, in the Middle Ages in Europe what's interesting about all those three is that they all were exiles the Rif had had to go from Morocco to Spain at the age of 75 the Rambam had spent most of his life on the run going from Spain to Egypt and the Rosh in 1306 the Rosh stands up with his son with his son being Yaakov ben Asher who we know as the Tour I'll get to that in a second they get up in Germany in the early part of the 1300s and they migrate to Sydney just kidding they migrate <laughs> they migrate to Spain they migrate to Spain as you can imagine the Rosh Bar very happy to have the Rosh turn up he's especially happy when he says to the Rosh oh by the way don't you understand what that is the greatest sage in Ashkenazic Europe goes to live in the middle of the Sephardi world never to see a piece of filter fish again 
and some decision. The Rashba is very happy to see the Rosh, especially when he says to the Rosh, I've got this little Maimonidean controversy about secular and religious studies and people wanting to study philosophy and so on. And the Rosh says to him, I've never learned secular study. And look at me, I'm the Rosh. He completely endorsed the ban. The Rosh thoroughly believed bringing a much, much narrower and frumer style of observance from the middle of Germany to Spain. Spain was always a bit fluid. They had enormous sages, Spain, but an enormous sage in Spain had to know everything. In Germany, you had to know everything, but you really needed to know the Talmud. All right. The, the Rosh's son is Yaakov Ben Asher, who we know as the Tour. Now, he writes a major, major halachic code based primarily on the halachic decisions of his father, but including elements from other great sages of the Middle Ages. What is unique about his code divided into four parts, is that it is not simply ordered according to the order as things appear in the Talmud, like the Rif and the Rosh, nor is it completely topically based, like Maimonides' Mishnah Torah. It is based according to how a Jewish person lives their life. It contains four major sections that are all familiar to you. Orachayim, Yoradea, Ebon Ezer, and Choshen Mishpat, ranging right across the great range from what you do the moment you open your eyes in the morning, right up to the most sophisticated ways of dealing with monetary arbitrations and divorce proceedings and all of the many complicated things that happen in Jewish life. It is that structure it is that structure that 200 years later, Yosef Karo is going to write a commentary on called Bet Yosef. And then when Yosef Karo moves to Tzfat in the middle of the 1500s, he's going to abridge that commentary and his commentary on the tour and call it Shulchan Aruch. So it really, that whole exercise of the full determination of the universalization of Jewish law, which is going to culminate in Tzfat in the 16th century, begins at the early 14th century. The tour by 1340, the tour, the work of the tour is complete and is already out there. But it would be... remiss of me if we did not just broaden this a little bit because it's extremely interesting as you know by the time we get to the 1400s and the early 1500s we're deep in a period that we now refer to in global intellectual terms as the Renaissance. Yep. And there are a couple of different views 
about when exactly the Renaissance happens. There's the short view, which means that it's a much tighter frame, framework, but there's the long Renaissance view, which argues, in fact, that the elements of the Renaissance can already be seen in the early 14th century, in the early 1300s. And who's the figure they always point to? Sorry? Petrarch's an excellent example, but there's probably an even more famous... Absolutely. Ten house points to the lady. Dante. Dante Alighieri, whose incredible work, The Divine Comedy, is seen as one of the great literary doorways into the Renaissance, and it's really only in the early 1300s. Now, Jewish life and Jewish intellectual and artistic life is not quite in sync with the Renaissance, but it is undergoing a Renaissance of its own. That is the period where some of our most famous artistic artifacts of the Middle Ages come from. There is a resurgence and a reinterest in art. And where do we see this perhaps most of all? In documents like the Golden Haggadah, the Golden Haggadah is from Barcelona in 1310, is pretty much when it's dated to. It's Gothic style, it's not breaking any ground in the Renaissance, you know, the Renaissance breaking ground in art and visual art really comes later with the invention of perspective and so on. It still looks like a Gothic manuscript, but it is evident, look, it's only during the last century, by the way, that the Haggadah itself has become separated, in a sense, from the Sidur to become its own textual artifact. It's kind of interesting. People think the Haggadah was, I mean, the, the rabbis in Bnei Brak that you read about in the Seder didn't turn up with their, you know, their art scroll Haggadot over there. It was a different, so, but the Haggadah is a textual artifact, as an, art, an artistic artifact, emerges really from the period that we're talking about, the Golden Haggadah, the famous Sarajevo Haggadah, is also from that period, a few years later than the Golden Haggadah, but it's also a product of Spain and its refocus on art. But the really interesting ones that are perhaps a part of the Jewish world that are triggering what's going to become the full-blown Renaissance are actually in Italy, where two cousins, Emmanuel of Rome, called Emmanuel Romano, was the first to, was a poet, and the first to introduce the whole structure of the sonnet into Hebrew literature and wrote a book called Tophet Ve'eden which is of course a journey into the celestial realms into hell and into heaven exactly the topic of Dante's divine comedy and it's no coincidence because his cousin Yehuda Romano, also of course living in Rome in Italy, the Jewish community of Rome has one of the oldest and longest and ironically safest communities in the Middle Ages, uh, was the first to translate Dante directly into Hebrew. So it's not like the Jewish world heard about the Renaissance a long time after it happened and went, oh that's a good idea, I think we'll imitate that. They were there at the very start 
forms of Hebrew literature and Hebrew poetry were being affected in Italy at the time that the Renaissance itself was sparking off. And perhaps the most fascinating figure from that period was not so much a poet or an artist, but something else entirely. Someone who really belongs to an almost entirely different field, a much, much more modern field. And that is, and I'll be super impressed if you know about this person, but this person is really important to know about, and that's why I'm talking about him. And the more you learn about this person, the more you realize their relevance to the last few hundred years. And I'm talking about Istori Haparchi. Who knows Istori Haparchi? At least half of you don't. Well, that's good. That's a good reason to be here. My friends, Istori Haparchi, and some people think Haparchi refer, refers to Florence, but in fact, probably more likely refers to um, a sister city, Florenza, in Spain. He came from the line of Haparchis who called themselves that. Others think he may have actually come closer and he was living in France, which is why he adopted the pen name of Ishtori, because he was actually living in Tours in France. But he had to leave France because of the expulsion of Philip IV, the one that I spoke about earlier, the famous, the famous expulsion of French Jewry in 1306. Now, most of the Jews in France who were expelled went to Spain, but a number of them traveled to other areas. And Istori Haparchi, who we believe his real name may have been uh, Isaac Hakohen, but we're calling him Istori Haparchi. And Istori Haparchi decided that he would go and live in the land of Israel. And he got to the land of Israel and over the next few decades became the world expert for the whole Jewish world for then and for subsequent generations on the topography of the land of Israel itself and the identification of all its holy sites. He identified 180 sites in his famous text called Kaftor Vaferach. I don't know if you've ever written about his story, Haparchi, but you should write on him. He's fascinating. 180 sites he located, including sites that we today take for granted, that we know where they are. Places like Modi'in, like Betar. Istori Haparchi said, here's where it happened. And we all went, okay. And he spent decades going back and forth across the land of Israel. He wasn't a big fan of Jerusalem. He didn't like it so much. He didn't like the people that lived there. Nothing new with that. So he, he lived in Bet Shan. And he spent most of his time walking around, observing the contours of the land, the plants, the conditions, things he heard from local Arab populations and their oral histories. He wrote the cartography and topography of the land of Israel as it basically became known. Story Haparki, incredibly important individual, apart, of course, from his love of the land of Israel. And I wouldn't necessarily he would say that he was a Pro, he was a proto-Zionist, but obviously Zionism as a, as a yearning is not really going to kick off for, uh, at, you know, even in its rarest, rare, most rarefied form for a couple of hundred years, but he is there. And then I want to talk for a few minutes about an individual far and away the smartest person in the 14th century. I mean, among Jews, there are probably a few smart Goyim as well, but in terms of a smart, this guy was very, very bright. 
Um, so bright, it's almost like he's living in another era. It really, it's almost like he's living literally, he could have fit in in the 17th century, but he's living in the 14th. But he's about 300 years ahead of his time. Astonishing figure from France called Rabbi Levi Ben Gershon, who we know as Gershalides, or we know as the Ralbag. I know these names, but you see, there's some people when you're at those dinner parties and they're talking about 1300s, you can't go, oh, Rabbi Levi Ben Gershom, you have to say the Ralbag. And the people go, the Ralbag. Rabbi Levi Ben Gershon on, has two fundamentally different careers going on at the same time. One of his careers is as a biblical exegete and philosopher. Really, those two are two separate careers even in themselves. He writes interpretations, he writes a commentary on the entire Bible. Well, okay, you write a commentary on the entire Bible. Others have done that before. It's a very meritorious thing. If your kid comes home from school and says, I've written a commentary on the entire Bible, you say, very nice. And you, give, you say, that's nachas for the family. But, you know, and it's, it is very nice. And it's a very impressive commentary. And he delves into, you know, philology and he delves into philosophy. But it's really seen kind of as part of his wider philosophical project. And the Ralbag, even after... The la most of the last Aristotelians have gone home. The Ralbag is still there going philosophy, rationalism, Aristotle on crack. <laughs> Interprets all of the miracles of the Bible rationally. Everything was rational. This was alarming. He was, of course, an extremely religious and learned rabbi, he could barely, you couldn't really touch the Ralbag because there was no one bigger than the Ralbag to tell him off. But there were certain of his philosophical ideas that were repulsive to many of the great sages of his and subsequent generations. He came under some extremely harsh criticisms. One of his most radical philosophical propositions that we have discussed in this very room when we talked about the series on philosophy and the Ralbag is a very big component of that was his basic solving of the free will problem. You know the free will problem right throughout the Middle Ages, the philosophical problem of free will. How if God is omniscient and knows everything, how do individuals have free will? Big philosophical problem. So he solves it by telling you, you have free will, and God doesn't know about it. The universe is one great big deterministic computer program. He didn't use those words, but that's what he meant. It's influenced by astrology, but it's like a big wound clock that's wound up and then you let it go, and it's all deterministic. If you let it. But as a human being, you can step off the plan. And when you do, as a result of your free choice, in moral issues, 
God doesn't know what you're going to do because you've moved off the plan. God knows the groups of people and what the likely outcome is. It's a radical solution and it was absolutely slammed by subsequent Jewish philosophers like Chastai Kreskas. We'll be looking at that in a couple of weeks to come. But the Ralbag is very, very big in Jewish philosophy. Huge rationalist. For him, as big a rationalist as Maimonides was, Maimonides didn't go far enough. Miracles only seem to happen in the sublunary abode because we don't have a full grip on that. But in fact, there's no miracles. Everything's preordained. The Torah, of course, itself is a rationalist document. It's a philosophical text. That didn't affect what you're meant to do. You're meant to be religious and keep mitzvot and so on. But it is fully rationalized. Now, this is not... This is not someone, this is not a professor at Yeshiva University in Jewish philosophy saying this. The Ralbag was not the equivalent of a rabbi at a modern Orthodox university. The Ralbag was the equivalent of someone who was a rabbi whose main day job is a professor of astrophysics at MIT. The Ralbag's contribution to astronomy is enormous. He devised, or at least he was the first to describe, this thing called a Jacob's Staff, which may in fact have been named after his colleague who passed away earlier, Yaakov bin Machir of, or Machir of Montpellier, who also, uh, around the time of the Maimonidean controversy, defended Maimonides, big astronomer. But the Ralbag's the first to write about this concept called the Jacob's Staff, which is a rod with a certain moving... Uh, apparatus on it by which it's possible to gauge distance and angle until the full development of the sextant in the next couple of centuries which was used for navigation Jacob's staff was the main tool by which astronomers and uh, mathematicians worked out relative distances between things so they're even able using angles and trigonometry to work out the distances to stars that they were, some of them were getting remarkably accurate, even in the 1300s. They couldn't believe the distances they were looking at, but according to the mathematics and the trigonometry, that's what it was telling them. And the Ralbag was the first person to develop trigonometric tables to five decimal places. And perhaps his biggest contribution, and probably the most significant contribution to astronomy between... Ptolemy and Copernicus, and of course, I don't have to remind you that they're all living in a pre-Copernican universe, right? The Earth is there, everything's going around it. It's not till Kepler and his Haverim and so on that they work out that, oh, actually, you know, the sun's in the middle and we're spinning around it. But in relation to Middle Age astronomy, he was actually able to correct quite a number of observations in relation to the periodicity of the moon. There are certain things about the way that Ptolemy had described the movements of the moon that were not making sense. The Ralbag is the one that brought observation of the moon to its most sophisticated stage, probably from his point on for the next couple of hundred years. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, there is a crater on the moon named after him called originally Rabbi Levi. In fact, 
there are two people in this series who are going to have craters on the moon named after them and those craters are close together if there is ever a Jewish community on the moon I guarantee you it will be sitting somewhere between Rabbi Levi's crater and another crater called Zagut which sounds Yiddish doesn't it? Zagut Zagut crater and that of course is named after Avraham Zakuto who in the next century is going to be an enormous uh, developer of navigational science but Rabbi Levi's credit on he is huge and a figure that's really way ahead of where so can you imagine that if the ban of the rush bar had been followed we would have had it would have actually changed the course in some ways of Western history now I know some of you are thinking, well, David, that's all good. That's, that's pretty upbeat. You started by telling us it was going to get depressing. And the hope in the darkness. And yeah, I haven't really focused, apart from a couple of expulsions, I haven't really focused on the dark stuff just yet. I want to hold on to a little bit of the hope. So a couple of things about the hope before we end off with the darkness because the darkness has a certain finality to it that we're going to have to do but during the 1330s something very interesting happens that we need to make mention of because it's going to come back later in Jewish history and that is in a place which hasn't really earned too much attention in Jewish history till this moment it's a place called Poland and in the 1330s Poland has a new king called Casimir who's going to go on and become Casimir the Great and he wants to honor certain commitments that were made to the Jews by his ancestors in the previous century it doesn't hurt Casimir that he's trying to grow his economy but the conditions and charters that he offered Jews to come and live in Poland in the 14th century were radical and revolutionary as far as what any other king had done in the Middle Ages till that time since maybe Charlemagne and his son Louis. Casimir allowed and afforded Jews to move into Poland in vastly larger numbers than would otherwise have been possible we're not yet at Poland as we know it organized communal Jewish life in Poland doesn't really take off as we have looked at till you know Jacob Pollock and all of those issues at the beginning of the 16th century but in the 1330s the groundwork is laid for lots of Jews to start moving into Polonia and to Eastern Europe and to start creating then can't go into Russia yet but Poland is a place that Poland and Lithuania are places that are starting to accept Jews in much larger numbers it's a significant point and not all the kings of Europe were that horrible they were all horrible <laughs> but some were a little less horrible famous story for example this is all within the period 1300 to 1350 that's all I'm talking about tonight but they're one of the kings of Aragon oh, you know Spain I didn't mention this but I'm sure you're aware that Spain was 
pretty much comprised of two major states, Castile and Aragon. Uh, those two kingdoms were only united, they will be united in this series, but they won't be united until the end of the 1400s through the marriage of Ferdinand and Isabella. They're still two separate kingdoms. So Pedro IV of Aragon has a Jewish physician called Isaac. We're not even sure of his full name, but the story is attested to in various sources. And he had a very unique relationship with this physician. They would often talk about concepts of theology and religion. The Christian kings of Europe were fascinated by religion and fascinated by Jews because everyone else around them was pretty much vanilla garden variety Roman Catholic Christian. And here's a Christ-killing, Christ-denying Jew right in front of them. What wouldn't be interesting? So he has a discussion with Isaac and he wants to know why Isaac will not drink a bottle of wine that has been touched by a Christian. So halakha in relation to idol worshippers touching wine and he believes that it's because the Jews regard Christians as unclean, as tamay, as unclean. And Isaac kept arguing that that was not the reason, that that was not the case. That there is nothing intrinsically unclean about a non-Jew it has to do with the non-Jews' intent and belief, and that was the Jewish law, but it was not to do with uncleanliness. And the king kept insisting, well, if it's not to do with uncleanliness, what's it to do with? It's got to be to do with uncleanliness. And to prove to the king that it was nothing to do with uncleanliness, he ordered a servant to come with a bowl of water and wash the king's feet. And when he had washed the king's feet, Isaac the physician picked up the bucket and drank it <laughs> to prove to the king, famous story, prove to the, he drinks the king's bath water to show him that it's not to do with impurity, that there is no inherent impurity about non-Jews. It is all about the theology going on in their minds. Fascinating little vignette from this particular period of Jewish history. Most of the kings that had Jewish employees in their court at one way or another eventually got rid of them or it was always a very tenuous position. We will see this again next week with other kings of Spain because Spain's about to go into its own civil war situation in Castile. But I've left this until the end and um, we're going to finish on what I'm about to talk about now. And this is one of the darkest phases not only of Jewish history but of world history this was something that well bizarrely 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 right now when I talk about issues and themes in history that have recurrent echoes in our own time so bizarrely right now we are watching the unfolding of a virus with potentially plague proportions, you need to know that in 1346-1347 a plague hit Europe that was to last for the next seven years in the course of which, well it didn't just hit Europe, it hit the known world, in the course of which it's very difficult for us to estimate exactly how many people died in the Black Death 
as a result of the plague, but even the most low numbers talk about 75 million people. And the population of Europe was only just over 100 million. 75 million globally and in Europe somewhere between a quarter and a half of the population. In some areas we have verified that it wiped out over 60% of the population. It was devastating. It wasn't just one type of plague, by the way. There was bubonic and there were other plagues. And it came, it used to be thought, it used to be thought that the Black Death, that the plague came from China. And that it came from China because China was allowing a lot of things to cross the interspecies barrier. This is the 1300s, ladies and gentlemen. We now know, epidemiologists, historians of epidemiology now know that it came from Central Asia. And it came, it only, when it came to here, it stopped here because the Mongol destructions had basically had caused there to be a very, very uninhabited line going along here. So it stopped and the plague went that way and then eventually came into Europe through Italy, through Brindisi, through the boats coming from the Middle East and then swept through Europe and you can follow it as it's finishing away, it's going to another and eventually ended up here in Eastern Europe. Even though it had come this way to start with, it didn't go into Eastern, it went down that way. So we actually, the plague followed historical and political lines that we can see, but it was devastating. And it's called the Black Death, of course, not simply because it's a dark time in history, but because people turned black. And they died slow, agonizing, and lonely deaths. It would take a couple of weeks to incubate, and once you knew it, you had it a couple of weeks before you're dead and it didn't distinguish between highborn and lowborn. There were princes and princesses who died in the plague as much as there were farmers and peasants and merchants. Now, it didn't take long for people in Europe, especially populations that owed money to Jews, to say, oh, I wonder where that came from. And rumours started circulating in Europe that the Jews had been poisoning wells. And they even managed to arrest and torture a couple of Jews who admitted to such. Who knows why, but the point is the Jews were not poisoning the wells. And Jewish communities died in highly significant numbers. As it happens, statistically, from what we understand, Jewish were dying in very high numbers in the plague, but statistically not quite as high as the non-Jewish populations. That then confirmed people's conspiracy theories. One of the reasons it's thought that Jews may not have been dying in such high numbers, although Jews were dying, was to do with some fundamental sanitary practices such as washing hands before food and also burying the dead outside of human places of habitation 
mikvahs, things like this, separation, the natural separations in life made some statistical dent that added the fuel to the hate. But it was linked with theological circumstances, it was linked with a lot of built-in xenophobia, it was built in with economic circumstances, but dozens of communities across Europe throughout that time were annihilated by mob violence. The I mean, and this is despite the fact that the Pope, Clement VI, made a public decree right throughout Europe a papal bull that the Jews are not to blame for the plague. Do not take out your violence and anger on the Jews. The Jews are not perfect, but they did not cause the plague. And despite that, the mob violence in much of Europe was unstoppable. If you want to read probably the worst atrocity against Jews, prior to the Holocaust, and that's a big, tall statement, have a look at the massacre of the community of Strasbourg in 1349. The community of Stras Strasbourg was a fascinating city because it didn't belong to Germany or France. It was an imperial free city. It meant that it was ruled directly by the emperor, who also told them, don't hurt the Jews. It had about 2,000 Jews, which made it an enormous community for the time. And on one day, the entire community, I mean, it's going to read, when you read it, it reads like Yemach Shimon, what happened in the 1940s with the Nazis, but the whole community was marched out of the city and told they were going to be pushed out, but they were taken into a forest where a timber structure was erected and they were herded into this timber structure and it was burnt to the ground and any other Jews that escaped were clubbed or murdered. And the same thing that happened a few months later. The community of Mainz annihilated, the famous, famous community of Mainz that had been founded already in the 11th century, annihilated. The community of Cologne, annihilated. What we see Interestingly enough is a pattern that every 300 years there's a program of annihilation of Jews in Germany. We do see that right over the last thousand years. But nevertheless, the Black Death saw some horrendous killings. And it is on that note that I'm ending. Uh, and a kind of appropriately, I know it's a dark point to end, but we did cover a lot of material and I wanted to indicate to you that the Black Death was, there are things that happen immediately after the Black Death, but I'm not going to talk about them now. We'll talk about it next week when we come back from the Black Death and we continue uh, to talk about hope in the darkness. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.